Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for joining us tonight. I'm Melissa Studdard, and I'd like to welcome you to Teferit Talk, the blog talk radio show for Teferit, a journal of spiritual literature, where our goal is to promote peace in the individual and in the world through writing. In addition to listening today, you're invited to join our online community at www.teferitjournal.com. That's www.teferitjournal.com. Or you can read and post writings, interact with other members, and subscribe to the journal. We'd also like to let you know that our blog talk chat room is currently open if you would like to chat with other listeners or suggest questions. Our interview tonight is with Robert Pinsky. Pinsky is a poet who has served three terms as United States Poet Laureate and is also an acclaimed literary critic and the best-selling translator of The Inferno of Dante. He has received numerous awards for his poetry and translations, including the Lenore Marshall Award, the Ambassador Book Award of the English-Speaking Union, the William Carlos Williams Prize, and many more. He currently teaches in the graduate writing program at Boston University and serves as the poetry editor for Slate. His most recent collection of poetry, Selected Poems, was released just this April. Lloyd Schwartz of the Boston Phoenix has said of Pinsky, in his poems, Pinsky talks with democratic warmth and intimacy to the common things of this world. His extraordinary poems remind us that he has always embodied the very ideal he proposes for what a poet can do. Hi, how are you doing tonight? Very well, thank you, Melissa. Glad to be talking to you. I'm so happy to be talking to you as well. Um, I'm going to go ahead and jump in with a couple of big questions, and then um, hopefully from there we can get more specific and look at some specific poems. I'll try Um, to give some medium-sized answers. (laughs) <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> okay, so um, the first question, um, in your lecture, Modernism and Memory at the Key West Literary Seminar, you said that to be born for death is to need to create memory that is larger than one generation. And you also said that the treasure of memory can only be properly cared for if it's transformed. And I know you're a big fan of Walt Whitman and William Carlos Williams and some other fantastic American poets. Um, so I wanted to see if you can talk about the particular ways in which some of your own poetry might be considered as a transformation of the poetic treasures of Whitman and Williams. Well, the born for death phrase is from John Keats's great poem, Ode to a Nightingale, when he says to the bird... Yeah which sings the same song as its grandparents and the same exact song that its great-grandchildren will sing, thou was not born for death, immortal bird. And at Mm -hmm. some point it occurred to me that uh, in choosing ancestors like Whitman as Williams, as well as my literal ancestors, the various Pinskys and Eisenbergs who stretch back behind me, um... I am choosing uh, to understand that I was born for death, as were Whitman and Williams and Keats and uh, David Pinsky and Morris Eisenberg and Becky Eisenberg and um, Rose Shodnyamara. We all were born for death, 
we remember certain things. And uh, I remember my grandmother Rose's tombstone and her picture in Long Branch, New Jersey, very well. She died as a young woman in childbirth. And uh, I remember my grandfather, Dave Pinsky, uh, telling my mother he wasn't, I was not going to go to school that day when I was in about the third or fourth grade. He'd take me into New York for lunch. I met Jack Dempsey. And uh, in a similar way, I remember Look for Me Under Your Boot Soles. And uh, mm-hmm. the copper in eight foot strips has been beaten lengthwise and right angles and lies ready to edge the coping. And uh, I'm very aware that it's my job to choose one of all those ancestors, the uh, literal and figurative progenitors, many of them are both, uh, what I pass on to my literal and figurative descendants. And uh, I must say I'm, I have more intense feelings about that than I do about... Um, ideas of uh, worship and, and God. I guess I'm like yeah. a, an ancient pagan. I think a lot about the ancestors and the descendants. Well, I love what you said. In, um, it was in that same lecture, um, Modernism and Memory, about that we don't, I can't remember the exact phrase, we don't worship our ancestors. We, we consult them. Of it? Yes, That's we consult them. what I heard them. in I Africa. When I was taken to see a son Gomo in Africa, uh, the man who was my guide, uh, he told me that uh, when we uh, we go to see the son Gomo, who goes into a trance and gets words from the ancestor, uh, he told me, uh, remember, we don't worship our ancestors, we consult them. And when I heard that, I felt I had uh, I had discovered my own belief. Are you there? <laughs> yes, I am. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, terrific. It sounded like we got disconnected from it. Yeah, that's absolutely wonderful, and it, I love the way you've translated it into poetry. Um, I wanted to ask also, you've said many times, and most recently in the PBS NewsHour, that poetry is too fundamental and too large to need an advocate, and I believe that's true. Um, however, I think if we look at poetry from the perspective that we were just speaking from as a treasure to be cared for, then um, we must admit, obviously, that no one's done a better job of caring for that treasure than you. So following your lead, what are some of the things you would recommend for contemporary Americans and particularly contemporary American poets to do to also properly care for that treasure? Uh, Our friends, our teachers, and librarians. I believe much more in teachers from kindergarten all the way through graduate school than I do in... uh, Marketing moves right now. Mm-hmm. Both the organizations will have things like on the web you can find how to make an Emily Dickinson or a Walt Whitman Halloween costume. <laughs> uh, or they'll have contests for kids to perform poems dramatically. I think that uh, quite simpler things to do with uh, encouraging good teachers. If you have children or know someone with children, Sit on the, yeah. the the kid sits on the parent's lap and listens to Walter Delamere or Edward Lear or Robert Louis Stevenson uh, or Dr. Seuss. And you read aloud to your children, you read aloud to one another. Um, the um, Favorite Poem Project at uh, favoritepoem.org is basically a version of that. You see the construction worker reading Whitman, 
the Cambodian-American immigrant young woman reading a Langston Hughes poem. And mm-hmm. uh, reading, reading the poem aloud is um, central. And it's so simple, it's possible to forget it. And what's a better feeling than discovering that by reading a poem aloud to yourself a few times, you've begun to get it by heart without trying Mhm, mhm, yeah, that's wonderful. Um, one thing I've noticed is that um some poets I think have a tendency to to write more for other poets and to bring their poetry to other poets and I guess i'm I'm kind of asking also um if you have any advice on how poets can bring their own poetry more to the world instead of mostly to each other. <laughs> Does that make sense? I think it's like being a musician or a dancer or an architect or a painter. You try to make something that would knock you out if you were the audience. So I don't think if if I imagine myself wanting to be an architect, I wouldn't want to base it on market surveys, whatever I do. I'd want to think about what makes me feel great, what kind of spaces make me feel full of uh, uh, kind of uh, delicious energy or uh, wonderful calm or make me want to be in them. And uh, if you're a musician, you try to play things that just knock you out. If you Mm -hmm. hadn't made it, you would like to hear it. So uh, maybe I differ from you in this, Melissa. Uh, I don't think about writing for an audience. I think, what if Robert hadn't written this? If he found Mm -hmm. it in a book or a magazine, would he yawn or would he stop and would he say to himself, I wonder what's on TV, or would he read it? Yeah, yeah, well, that's really interesting. Like, your audience is yourself, in a way. I think it is, but only you didn't write it. So it, mm-hmm. you're always, in, in just about any pursuit, certainly in all the arts, you're trying to get on that sweet place in between on the one side, liking your work too much so you don't make it any better, <laughs> or on the other side, not liking it enough so you don't do it. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think your own joy... The joy I take in Hart Crane or Emily Dickinson or Ben Johnson, Allen Ginsberg, whatever pleases me in poetry, that's my compass. That's my guide. And I mm-hmm. can't go by what I think might please Melissa Studdard or might please my friend or what would my dad like to read or what would sell copies, what charms an audience that are reading. No, I'm not interested in that. Uh, I just try to think, what is the kind of thing I adore? How can I make something that is out of my heart uh, the way uh, Howell is out of Ginsburg's heart or the Ode to a Nightingale is out of uh, John Keats's heart? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a great answer, and, and I think you're right. I think if you worry too much about all of those other things, you'll just go crazy with it. You know, you won't – I mean, for me, it would just paralyze me, and I wouldn't be able to write. <laughs> Well, you're making art in a different way. You're a craftsman of a different kind. And uh, I won't sneer at it. There are people who do do market research, and then they design the car, or they write the, you know, I I could go to almost any realm. If you open the comic strips in the Boston Globe, there are strips where I feel the person drawing the strip is very interested in what will a lot of people be in for, what do a lot of people want. And then Mm -hmm. I read Bill Griffith's, Zippy the Pinhead, which I adore, I just love, and I feel he is trying to make things that, in the drawing, in the dialogue, and the continuity, have the kind of joy and playfulness and wackiness and uh, seriousness that he enjoys. Mm-hmm. 
I feel yeah. I recognize somebody who's making art out of the spirit of art. And uh, it's not to sneer at the spirit of commerce. has a place, too. Uh, <laughs> right. But I'm, I, I'm more like uh, Bill Griffith. Mm-hmm. I hope. Okay. Great. <laughs> okay, so um, I'm wondering what you noticed about your own poetic evolution when you were compiling selected poems. Um, did you learn anything significant about who you've been as a poet or where you'd like to go next? You always want to do something different. And uh, I was relieved to find that as I went through the poems, I did feel I was always doing something different. Each book seemed to take a new direction. And uh, I recognized that I've been asking myself, what haven't you been able to do yet? Uh, and that includes making different kinds of lines. Um mm-hmm. I know that uh, some of my young students wonder why I still use the capital letter at the beginning of the line. Um, And I have both a stupid and a smart answer to the question. And I did notice it as I went through. Uh, The stupid answer is almost everybody nowadays uses the lowercase at the beginning of the line. So why not be different? And uh, a slightly smarter answer is I think more than many people, I really am very aware of lines and the kind of line. I've never written a sonnet or a villanelle or a sestina. I'm not interested in forms in that sense, but I'm very interested in different kinds of lines. So I'll see one book where there are a lot of long lines, one where there are short ones, one where the lines are rather close to iambic pentameter, one where they're rather far. I'll recognize different ancestors. This is your Blake or Dickinson moment. This is more of a Whitman or a Williams moment. And um, I hope the poems I'm writing right now are doing something that nothing in this book is quite like. Yes, I think that's great. Um, Well, I'd love to hear you read a poem from Selected Poems. Would you read Gulf Music? I'll be happy to read Gulf Music. Wonderful. Um, You know I'm in Houston, so... (laughs) It might be good to warn your readers that I quote two things uh, in the in the poem. I quote uh, the uh, great piano player and uh, vocalist Professor Longhair uh, at the beginning, and I also quote the Hebrew uh, 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 a Hebrew song from the uh, from the Haggadah, the Passover service, and I not only quote them. At one point, they get mixed up together. Gulf music. Malawala telabella, trama tra la 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 la, malabel, ipafana wanabella, willawa. The hurricane of September 8, 1900, devastated Galveston, Texas. Some 8,000 people died. The Pearl City almost obliterated. Still the worst natural calamity in American history. Woe, Malawala. Eight years later, Morris Eisenberg, sailing from Lubeck, entered the States through the still-wounded port of Galveston. 1908, Ilu Hotsi Hotsiano, Hotsiano Mimitsrayam. Or you could say Morris was his name. Amosha, Ipafana, Wanabella Wo. The New Orleans musician called Professor Longhair was named Henry Roland Byrd. Not heroic, not nostalgic, not learned. Made up names, hum a few bars, and will um la la wo omadala. 
Long Hair, or Henry, and his wife, Alice, joined the Civil Defense Special Forces 714. Alice was a colonel, he a lieutenant. Here they are, in uniforms and caps, pistols and holsters, Hutziano, Epifano, Trimidala, Tralala. Morris took the name Eisenberg after the rich man from his shtetl who in 1908 owned a town in Arkansas. Most of this is made up, but the immigration papers did require him to renounce all loyalty to Tsar Nicholas. As he signed to that, he must have thought to himself the Yiddish equivalent of no problem, Malabel, Hotsiano, Wella Malo with a dollar, Mafano well, a town full of people named Eisenberg. The past is not decent or orderly. It is made up and devious. The man was correct when he said it's not even past. Look up at the waters from the causeway where you stand. Lime Causeway, made of grunts and halfway forgettings on a foundation of crushed oyster shells. Roadbed paved with abandonments, shored up by haunts. Becky was a teenager married to an older man. After she met Morris in 1910 or so, she swapped Eisenbergs. They rode out of Arkansas on his motorcycle, well away, wet away, meets Ryan is Egypt. I remember that much. The storm bulldozed Galveston with a great rake of debris. In the September heat, the smell of the dead was unbearable. Hotsi Hotsi Anu. Professor, the New Orleans title for any piano player. He had a Caribbean left hand, a boogie-woogie right. Civil Defense Special Forces 714 organized for disasters, mainly hurricanes, floods, New Orleans style, borrowing this and that, a well away la la, they probably got 714 from Joe Friday's badge number on Dragnet. Jack Webb chose that number in memory of Babe Ruth's 714 home runs, the old record. As living memory of the great hurricanes of the 30s and the 50s dissolved, Civil Defense Forces 714 also dissolved, washed away, washed away for well or ill, yet nothing ever entirely abandoned, though generations forget, and ah well, the partial forgetting embellishes everything all the more, Allah mala, ma meets rayam, try my tra-la-la, hootsie dollars, dollars, callings and contrivances, King Zulu, Comus, Sephardic Juju, and Verses, Voodoo Mojo, Special Forces. Henry formed a group called Professor Longhair and his Shuffling Hungarians. After so much renunciation and invention, is this the image of the promised end? All music haunted by all the music of the dead forever. Becky haunted forever by Pearl, the daughter she abandoned for love. Oh, try my tra-la-la, ma la belle, ma wo
Wow, thank you. That was fantastic. <laughs> um, I think you just proved that you can do call and response with yourself, right? As a poet? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> At least well, between theme and sound. <laughs> yeah, refrain is very basic to poetry. You know, it's in all the ballads, it's in song. And um, I like doing something very traditional in a somewhat crazy, weird, different way. And the poem is so much about what you and I were just talking about. Uh, in New Orleans, you know, it's Gulf music. Um, Katrina, the special forces had dissolved, but those people started that in the 30s for natural disasters, hurricanes. They organized this uh, structure, this traditional organization, to preserve water and to help people in times of floods and hurricanes. And in that case, the ancestral tradition didn't quite last long enough. TV came in, there hadn't been a really big hurricane, and when they really needed it, it wasn't quite there anymore. And uh, to me, that's one of the uh, one of the risks and uh, sadnesses, along with the glory of civilization, is uh, we make we make traditions to take care of the world and uh, of the people, and sometimes they suffice, and sometimes they wither, sometimes they don't. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I remember you said somewhere that um, all of your poems are about the same thing, the fact that there's history and everything. And um, I'm wondering why why did that particular theme um, stick with you in that way, or, or did it choose you, <laughs> you know, to convey I think, this poetic? I think the latter, Melissa. Who knows why, really? why you think about a certain thing. Uh, <laughs> I grew up in a historic town. Long Branch, New Jersey, had been the capital of many presidents. Uh, Grant went there in the summer. Garfield loved it. Garfield died in Long Branch after he was shot. Um, it was it used to be the, as the sign used to say as you entered the town, America's first seashore resort. So there was that Bella Puck background. And then I was also interested by the history of my my parents and grandparents who came to the town, you know, in the 20th century. And uh, I was fascinated by that grandfather, Dave Pinsky, who, when I knew him, had a bar. But in the <laughs> 20s, he'd been a bootlegger in the town. And that had mm -hmm. a certain uh, fascination for me. Um, I don't know why the past means so much to me. Uh, I had a nominally orthodox Jewish upbringing, and it was so nominal that I promised myself I wouldn't have to do it anymore. But I was <laughs> surrounded by the past uh, as a all child. Right. Uh, it was all around. <clears throat> Great. I noticed that also, um, as important as history and memory are to you, you've, you've also been writing a lot lately about forgetting. Um, can you talk about the significance of that as well? Well, forgetting is a form of memory. Um, the forgetting of Babe Ruth's 714 home runs, the forgetting of Joe Friday's badge number 714, uh, the forgetting of Special Forces 714 in New Orleans, all those forgettings are part of the story that I try to remember in that poem. Like mm -hmm. the forgetting of my grandfather Eisenberg's first surname, when he took the surname Eisenberg, because in that little Arkansas shtetl, they were all called Eisenberg, 
including the man he took his wife away from. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't conceive remembering without forgetting. Neither term would have any meaning without the other. Uh, so if you're going to write about remembering, you certainly are obliged to write about uh, forgetting as well. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, I was going to ask you with um, the poem that you just read, um, I love the scatting in the poem as well. And I mentioned the call and response, and I know you have a strong musical background, and I'm wondering what are some of the other ways that you see your musical background manifesting in your poetry? Well, I've always liked refrains. I've always liked, quote, nonsense, end quote. Somebody who doesn't know Hebrew, Hotsi Hotsiano Mimitz Rhyme sounds like nonsense. Somebody who doesn't know <laughs> Professor Longhair, Talawala Tramadala Malabel may sound like nonsense. Uh, and I suppose if you don't speak English, what you and I are saying sounds even more like nonsense <laughs> than it might anyway. So um, the grunts, the sounds of words, again, may go back to my childhood. The one beautiful thing in those long services I endured in Saturday mornings was cantorial singing. And uh, I had learned Hebrew phonetically. I couldn't understand 80% of what was being sung. I had the general idea, and the singing was beautiful. Um, and you're right, in my high school days and early college years, I was still trying to be a musician. Though so, gradually I realized I was going to be better off trying to make poems than trying to be a musician. Though, as you, as I think you know, lately I've been performing rather a lot with uh, musicians. Yes, yes. Um, you know, I know the composition process isn't really the same for all poems, but maybe just taking this specific poem, um, what was it like for you? Were you led by the sounds more? or um, I knew I wanted, I knew I wanted that, um, I wanted to start the poem with that call with pure finesse. What looked like, I mean, this got whoa. It has try my dollar. It has Mala Bell, my beautiful, um, mm-hmm. and uh, it has meanings. Uh, you can't have pure nonsense any more than you can have pure meaning. There's always some grunt. <clears throat> there's always some significance. I know I wanted to start that way, and I knew I wanted to make these separate couplets. Uh, I wanted to have each unit about the same length, and I wanted it to move around. And exactly what was going to come into it in the way of history, I wasn't sure. I knew it had to have New Orleans in it and Professor Longhair. Uh, that Joe Friday was going to come in was a surprise. I knew that the <laughs> Passover uh, uh, hymn or song was going to come in that my the lost half-sister of my mother, Pearl, whom her mother abandoned when she changed Eisenberg's, I didn't know Pearl was going to come in. I almost thought she couldn't because Galveston, Texas, its nickname has been the Pearl City. Right. Pure coincidence. And uh, I knew that the South was going to be important. My mother was born in Arkansas. My grandfather did entered the country as part of what uh, historians call the Houston Project. A certain number of uh, Ashkenazi Jews came into the South through the port of Galveston, through a a certain project supported by uh, wealthy, long-settled German Jews in New York. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew it was going to have history in it, Melissa, exactly how it was going to come in and what history I just sort of felt as I went through the poem. But I had, wow. the, in effect, the tune in the couplets. Uh, I had a kind of a tune or a harmonic structure in the couplets, and then I had to listen to how I was going to weave Malawala Telabella and Hotsi Hotsiano <laughs> in or not, and then I'm, I, I'm, I'm happy the way it comes together with that, where it gets King Zulu, Koma, Sephardic Juju, and Versus, Voodoo Mojo, Special Forces. It gets a different kind of intensity towards the end. And uh, yeah. for a long time, I couldn't keep from laughing myself every time I read Henry formed a group named Professor Longhair and his Shuffling Hungarians. It's just a very <laughs> witty name. It's something just, and it's all about this, the cultural syncretism, the mishmash of putting a lot of things together that I love yeah. in American culture, and uh, yeah. you know our mongrel invention. And it shows that Henry Bird, known as Professor Longhair, was very aware of it very in control of it, rather sophisticated about it, and uh, droll, Professor Longhair and his shuffling Hungarians. He had a laugh out of that, and I have a laugh out of it when I look at it. <laughs> well, it's so energetic in the poem, too, I think, the, the mishmashing that you're talking about. And, um, you know, I love what you, you said before, um, not in this interview, but in another one that I've listened to about how... Um, you know, you don't really have to understand everything in a poem. That's what's wonderful about it. It's just, you know, it is what it is to some extent, and um, you know, the, the the rest of the poem carries it in the context. If you're having a good time, you don't need to understand every single thing. I think right. maybe even you have more fun at the opera or uh, listening to rap music if you like that. Listening to anything, right. I think you have right. a better time if you feel I'm having a lot of fun and I don't quite understand it all yet. I need to hear it again and again. <laughs> Right, right. And if, and you, or if the audience is not having a good time, clarity's no use. Doesn't help. That's right. That's you right. Have to be well, and a good time. People would. Uh, the more people realize that, the less intimidated they'll be by poetry. You know, the people who are intimidated by it. I think a lot that. of well-meaning teaching and a lot of literary criticism has given people the idea that the poem is, first of all, an occasion to say smart things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, always, first of all, something that sounds great when you say it. And, uh, <laughs> smart things are good, but um, they can come in due course. The first thing right. is just enjoy the way it sounds. Yeah, that's that's great. Well, we're I can't believe we're out of time already. It just flew by. But um, do you have any upcoming events or publications or anything you'd like to announce before we close? I guess not. Can't remember. Uh, on between uh, July 11th and 15th here in Boston at the Ed School is my institute for K-12 teachers. And uh, right. the readings and lectures by my friends Louise Glick and Heather McHugh and uh, Carl Phillips and me, uh, those are open to the public. And sometime in July I'll be in Saratoga Springs working with jazz musicians, reading my poems with jazz musicians at the New York State Writers Institute. So... Oh, that sounds so wonderful. <laughs> oh, here's Thank another. you so much. It's Gail Mazur and I were reading at uh, Provincetown on, um, I forget if it's July 12th or August 12th. Forget that. 
Okay. Well, you Thank know, I you, think Melissa. people can look it up as long as they know yeah. it's coming, right? Is there somewhere yeah. they can look at that, a website? Uh, we'll be at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown. And okay. uh, I think it's, uh, I can't remember. Close <laughs> <laughs> um, enough. <laughs> I, think, I think we must be doing, since I'm here in July, I think I must be doing it in uh, August with Gail. Okay. Yeah, August 12th with Gail Mazur in Provincetown. Great. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real delight speaking with My you. My pleasure, Melissa. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Okay. Um, thanks so much to those of you who are listening in this evening and those of you listening after the fact as well. Our next interview will be July 24th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with Lois P. Jones poet, associate poetry editor of Kyoto Journal, and the host of Poets Cafe, which airs every second and fourth Wednesday at 2 p.m. on KPFK in Los Angeles and Santa Barbara. We also invite you to join us from August 26th to 28th for Empowering Ourselves and Others Through Sharing Our Stories, a weekend retreat led by Interfaith Minister Diane G. Price. The retreat includes two nights lodging at Quellen Spiritual Center in Mendham, New Jersey. For more information, please visit our website at www.teferitjournal.com. A year subscription to Teferit is $18 and includes six issues, two print and four digital. The site is also a great place for readers and listeners to post their own poetry since our editors feature one new poem each day from those who post. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. We hope you'll join us again in July. <laughs>